Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Today, we are starting a discussion about systemic racism and its connection to mental health and the care received by people of color, at least in the United States. It might not seem that racism has anything to do with biofeedback, neurofeedback, or mind-to-body health, but racism has to have an impact. As an often unconscious biasing factor, racism influences our formulations, our treatment plans, and our expectations. Because racism is also a fundamental context within which at least the United States has developed, these biases are baked into our institutions, including healthcare. The data support this notion. There is plenty of evidence that health disparities are, at least in part, due to racism. Discussing racism, especially systemic racism, can be fraught. People have strong reactions. But if we want to provide the best care, and I think we do, we have to grapple with our imperfections and our biases. We are incredibly fortunate that our guides in this conversation are experts in identifying and working to undo racism in healthcare. Duran Young is a licensed therapist, New York Times best-selling author, retired military mental health officer, and the founder of Black Therapists Rock, a nonprofit organization that includes over 30,000 professionals committed to reducing the psychological impact of systemic oppression and intergenerational trauma. Dr. Charmaine Jackman is a licensed psychologist with over 25 years in the mental health field, working in schools and with families involved with social services and the juvenile justice system. She is the founder and CEO of InnoPsych Inc., an organization on a mission to disrupt racial inequities in mental health. In the first part of our discussion, Duran and Charmaine talked about the problems of racism in mental health care from both the perspectives of providers and patients. So I want to first start just with the basic data uh, and about the experience of people of color, particularly with stress, but more generally in the mental health system. Uh, Charmaine, I wonder what, what you could tell us about what's going on out there. Yeah, so I, I definitely can share some of the data points that that we have that I have that I'm aware of and some that we are collecting on our our platform as well. So I think some of the data to be mindful of and to be aware of when we talk about systemic racism. I'm a psychologist and so when I look at I first look at um uh, what does the workforce of psychologists of color look like or black psychologists? And we see that um, black psychologists represent only 4% of all the health service providers um, in the United States, right? So that's telling. Um, and psychologists of color represent 13%. So still very low numbers. So, so, so that's, that's a piece, right? So we're looking at, okay, wh- what is happening there in terms of our field? And I, I'm sure around with, you know, those numbers are pretty similar in the social work field. So there are not a lot of people being mentored or, or recruited into our field. And that, you know, when we think about um, the mental health field and therapy, uh, we often, the, we, you know, I, I focus on the, the disparities and the inequities in mental health access and utilization. Um, and so if there, you have people who you can't go to find someone who looks like you, you're probably not going to go want to see that service. Um, 
And so when we see some data I have is from NAMI, uh, National Alliance on Mental Illness. They have some multicultural data that they collected around 2015. And you can see it broken down by um, racial identity and who you, uh, racial identity and gender and who uses um, therapy and mental health resources. So when we look at black individuals, you see those numbers for men are about 6%, for women are about 12%. Um, and so, and the, you know, so I, I, I can't remember all the numbers off the top of my head right now, but I could pull those up for you. So, so the numbers are really low, um, uh, when we, when they're broken down by race and by gender. Overall, men use mental health services much less than women. Um, so those are some of the data that when I think about, uh, when I look at the work that we're doing, those are data that, data points that are really important for us. And, the work that we're doing in terms of collecting data on our own website is around what are some of the beliefs about therapy? What are some of the barriers for people getting into care? And we look similar to you, Duran, we look at some of those messages that people hold, the family that are passed down, you know, through cultures about why therapy is or isn't something that we use. And so we hear a lot of, it's not for us. It costs too much. It's a luxury. It's for white folks. You don't tell your business <laughs> outside of the house, right? So there are all of these. And then we have messages around cultural and, and mistrust around medical uh, services because of medical trauma. So all of those things really interplay, right? The workforce um, and those messages about mental health really play into why people don't access mental health services. Sherman, mm. you, you mentioned... Um... Uh, medical trauma, and there's, there's, you know, there's a well-established or, or well-documented cultural bias within healthcare, and that people of color, especially women, tend to get care a lot later and to get less quality care than white men. H how's this playing out in the treatment of, say, of stress-related disorders or other mental health disorders? You know, particularly these days, you know, this day when we are living through just multiple global existential crises with the pandemic, with climate change, with all the socio-political upheaval. How is that playing out in in mental health? Yeah, I mean, there, there, there are a number of things that we're seeing, and I'm sure Duran will, will, can add to this. I think one of the things that I've been in the field for over 25 years, and I'm definitely seeing a shift I think there are people who are more interested in therapy. And I think part of that, I think even before COVID, there was definitely more interest. I think you're seeing more visibility of therapists. You're seeing people kind of take control of their mental health and well-being and, and really looking for information. So I think social media has been really, really impactful in helping people really be aware of emotional well-being and what do I need to look for in that. I would definitely say my practice when I when I saw um, when I had clients in therapy, most most of my clients were black women, and most of them were dealing with depression and anxiety. Some of that was related to work. Some of that related to family dynamics. Um, we had to do a lot of education, like what what is happening to me, and um, how do I get support and services for that. Um, so I think there is what I see, there's a, almost like a lack of understanding of your symptoms uh, and what that might mean and that there that and, and lack of information about treatments that are available. 
But I think, again, that that is really tied into the stigma around mental health and therapy. And so, you know, not really knowing or understanding your symptoms, I think, was a part of that gap in knowledge. What about you, Duran? What are you what are you seeing in terms of uh, access to care or people of color getting care, appropriate care? Yeah, I think, you know, um, there's a lot of different factors that go into this, but what like I always talk about and what I kind of focus on and specialize in is really understanding systemic causes and uh, as well as cultural uh, factors. So I think that, you know, when we live in an environment where white people have, uh, you know, 97% more access to resources on the planet, um, that's what we first have to start with. You know, why is that? We don't, when a flower doesn't bloom, we don't question the flower, we look at the environment. So I think looking at this environment, the world that we find ourselves in where um, I believe personally, and a lot of people, you know, share this thought, is that wellness and health has been very whitewashed. Um, for many, many years, black people didn't even have access to the same healthcare systems in America. And now that- And still we- don't, and still don't. Correct. <laughs> now we're starting to embrace what you know could be available to us. Uh, we, we meet a lot of barriers. We meet people that don't understand us, that don't um, understand the experience of being Black in America or Black in this world. People that don't understand or, or don't aren't really interested maybe in understanding how we are different and what we need that might be different. Um, and, and needing something different also requires a lot more energy and effort, I think. So sometimes people just are used to doing things the way they've always done them. Um, so those systemic issues and then, you know, overlapping that with people who have been left out, have been kind of, um, if you will, like you were, you were talking about in the media, have not seen themselves reflected in this care model, have not seen themselves, you know, depicted in things like self-help books or um, yoga, meditation, you know, all these things that are more frequently seen um, when we look in, at television or programming in the world, we often see them attached to white people, white bodies, and white culture. So I think that it's this all that has happened is not, you know, the result of what has happened is not on accident, but has been very systemic and uh, very intentional. And now we have to be very intentional and systemic about creating solutions. Yeah, and I think to break it down, you know, adding on to what Duran was saying, so there's a systemic issues, right? And so which impacts the medical, the healthcare system, but it also impacts our training. And I think we, you know, we want to underscore that, right? I had to unlearn a lot of things that I learned in grad school about how to work with communities of color. And so, so that's the, the training piece. And then that then comes down to when you're in the, in the room, the therapy room, right? What does that look like at the interpersonal level? So we see this racism at the institutional level, talk about cultural, interpersonal, levels and then people are also inter- have internalized the racism and so when you're in that therapy space what does that interaction look like some of the things that i have heard people say to me when they're accessing care and it's cross-cultural um, that they've experienced microaggressions they've experienced people kind of expressing white guilt in the session and it just makes that space more uncomfortable and people less likely to want to engage in those services going forward so I think as we think about your audience, right, what is the work that you have to do to unlearn what you've been taught about how to work cross-culturally, H- how to be in that space with people who you may not share a lot um, in terms of cultural, ethnic background. 
Um, so there's a lot of work and unlearning that has to happen in that space. Because um, people are coming in cautious. <laughs> I would say, right, they're rolling in cautious about therapy because they've heard stories that have been passed down. They've, you know, when we when we share our stories, we often don't share the good ones. Like, oh, my, well, actually, I would say not now. I definitely hear people talk about how great their therapists are. But we often kind of hold on to those negative experiences. And so how do we make sure that we are providing care that uh, makes people want to come back? Both of you were involved in training and uh, in getting clinicians to provide more responsive approaches. When I was back in graduate school, we talked about multiculturalism. And more recently, though, there seems to be a shift towards a more active approach with a focus on cultural competence or ethnocultural responsiveness. I wonder if, maybe start with you, Duran. Well, what does culturally competent or responsive training look like for us as healthcare providers? The first thing um, that comes to mind for me is language. You know, I talk a lot about language because language is so cultural. And so a lot of times when we think about words and we don't know what they mean, it's really easy to just throw around a phrase and not really understand it or not be able to apply it in, in context or in, in the actual therapy sessions, right? So the word to me, legacy burdens is very easy to understand and to understand white supremacy culture as a legacy burden that we are all carrying on this planet, that, that, that there's no one who's immune to it, that we've all breathed it in. We've all, you know, we're all blowing it back out on each other. And to be more mindful of that, to be more mindful of the fact that this is something that infects us all, not just black people, not just people of color. We all need to carry this together. So when I talk about legacy burdens in the IFS community or just talking about cross-cultural compassion, which is another thing I talk about a lot with Brene's work, um, I also work with Brene Brown, who's been studying race, class, and gender for 20 years. Um, and her work is, is kind of like looking at, um, not kind of like, but her predominant work right now is looking at racial trauma in the workplace, as you were saying, uh, Charmaine, that you know a lot of these microaggressions and, you know, traumatic experiences are happening where people have to go for it to, to receive a living, right? In order for them to, to live the same lifestyle or similar life as everyone else or to have access to resources, you need money, you need financial resources. So I think that, you know, that, that understanding that yes, people were people in environment and that things that get passed down are still impacting us today. Uh, history is still a part of us. And the only model that I'm familiar with that really looks at what the therapist is dealing with, what we're bringing to the therapy space is IFS. Um, I don't know another therapy model that really focuses, I mean, maybe there are some, but they're not very maybe well marketed or, or well known. Um, but to really see the therapist as a person and part of the room, you know, as part of the environment, and to look at what that therapist is also bringing to that dynamic and exchange is important. Um, I think that when we go to our trainings, and when I was in graduate school, it was very much from a like a power over perspective, like you're here to fix someone or do something to someone, not doing something with someone um, and sharing that power um, and really, you know, deconstructing that power dynamic in the room so that we can see everything that's actually happening in real time, because that's what's happening in the world. You know, this is what people are experiencing in their everyday life. And to, to get that opportunity to have a corrective experience. I think that cross-cultural interactions are a great time to really look at our stuff and to look at how we react to one another and how those legacy burdens are showing up in our interactions. So it's, it's real life practice to me. And I, I think that's why I've become so committed to being amongst people that are different, that have different perspectives and come from various 
you know, lifestyle backgrounds and et cetera, and really understanding what living from an anti-oppressive life really means. You know, what is that? Not just working from that lens, but being and, and operating my whole entire being from that lens of, of anti-oppression and collective liberation. I want to think a little bit about uh, h- how to apply these ideas to some of the more specific clinical work we're doing. So a, a lot of the audience of this podcast are going to be clinicians and people who are interested in, in psychophysiology, you know, the ways that our, our physical and psychosocial experiences interact and reflect each other. So for example, at some level, a stress response is a physiologic phenomenon. You know, the autonomic nervous system is responding in ways that are, are trying to minimize uh, a perceived danger and to prepare the body f- for an attack. How, how do we bridge this gap? You know, when I, if I'm working with somebody and doing biofeedback or neurofeedback, an argument can be made that that person's ethnocultural background doesn't really matter in the clinical work I'm doing. But how, how do I start to, to, to include those, those factors in the work, in the clinical work? Um, I could definitely start, and I know this is definitely Duran has lots to probably will have lots to add. I think that it's kind of a fallacy to say that the ethnocultural, you know, that that's it's not necessarily a new term, but that's new to me in this in this space. But that our cultural background is not going to play a role, right? I think it's, it goes back to that training model where we come in as blank slates and we're all equal and we're all the same. And it really is about pushing against that. We're not all equal. We've, we've had very different experiences in this world. And I'll refer back to our, we were talking about the systems of racism, right? And the levels of racism, right? We have to take that into account because if we don't, we are negating a significant amount of people's experiences when they walk through your door. So if you're not recognizing systemic racism, you're not going to re, re, you're not going to acknowledge what it took to get them to that appointment. They may have arrived 10 minutes late and you're not, you're not accounted for, um, breakdowns in transportation. If in the Boston area, the, the breakdown of the, the orange line, right? So if we're not, if we're not taking in people's, and that's very <laughs> local, <laughs> um, thing. So if we don't, if we don't acknowledge that people have, are walking different paths in this world, we're negating a significant amount of their experience and they're not going to trust you when they, when you come through the door, if you're not acknowledging that piece, they're not going to trust you and they're not going to definitely come back to see you. Um, so that is, I think that's step one. You have to acknowledge that. And that's work that therapists, you know, may need to do. Right. And it's not going to, you're not going to take one course or listen to this one podcast and get it right. Right. It's going to, it's, it's, it's long-term work is ongoing work. I, I am doing that ongoing work. I am doing unlearning in my own way, which I was colonized, right? So it's work that I am doing as a black therapist as well. Um, so we have to acknowledge that. So that's the first thing I will say. <laughs> and I, I just want to go back to the systemic idea because uh, I think we could all, you know, transparently say that there aren't a lot of black and brown professionals in the world of biofeedback and neurofeedback. So I think there lies, you know, a really glaring problem. And within the therapists that are operating with those resources, which I think are very valuable resources that I I hope one day all marginalized communities have access to. However, the therapists that currently have access to that, to that, those tools, equipment, and resources, are they using their privilege to advocate for other people who don't have it? 
You know, are they joining us on podcasts to ask about our experiences and what we need support with? Are they going, you know, out of their way in their everyday lives to challenge their own biases? Are, do they have, um, you know, sliding scales? Do they have, uh, you know, what, what kind of system are you setting up in your own practice? And how could it be, you know, implicitly biased? Um, how is it in, in, kind of infiltrating or um, perpetuating? white supremacy culture, right? If, if everyone that walks in your office is white and you're used to walking, you know, working with straight, heterosexual, non-marginalized people, are you even prepared to work with people from different backgrounds? So really challenging our own personal biases. And, and I know we all want to be good. We want to believe that the work that we're doing is good and fair, um, but really challenging ourselves, you know, those places where we aren't seeing people that don't look like us or don't think like us, or don't feel like us, and don't experience the world the way we do. And how might these things play out in, in how stress or anxiety presents? I, I think that's one of the, the, the main things that interests me about biofeedback and neurofeedback is I really would, like I said, love to see more marginalized communities have access to this so that we have that data and so that they can understand how their body is responding. A lot of people of color and queer people, they think it's all in their head. That's what society says. You know, it's just in your head. It's not in your body. It's not impacting you. And so we navigate the world that way. I know for myself personally, I'll share a little bit about my story. You know, I came from a mother who was 16 years old when she gave birth to me, automatically placed in poverty, did single parent home. And at 16, she wasn't really equipped to raise a child on her own and she didn't have any support or resources to help her in that journey. As a result of that, uh, three months into my life, I was put on life support because I got pneumonia um, because my mother couldn't afford to turn the gas on when it started to get cold. So something like that in your story or in your experience, in your in your body, right, in your body memory, you may think that it has no impact on you. My mom, to this day, I'm sure she thinks I'm just fine. She says I was on life support for three days and I've been strong ever since, right? We love being strong. <laughs> That's another really good buzzword when we're talking about Black mental health and, and marginalized people is we've been told that we just have to be strong, right? Um, it's all in your head, but you got to be strong, <laughs> whatever that means. So I think getting strong people to see the data about what is happening in their body could be really transformative. I know it has been for me. You know, I, I was in the military, so I had access to those resources and tools. And, and having language, again, knowing what's happening in my body and being able to put that into practice and to know that I have agency to actually make changes to it, um, that my health belongs to me and it's not something that is done for me or to me, but done with me, right? And so I think, again, all of these, these concepts are really important, and especially in terms of understanding biofeedback and for people who experience trauma each and every day. Yeah, and I would add, I, I love what you're, thank you for sharing your story, Duran. Um, so important to hear those stories. And I think your clients have lots of stories like that. And so it, how do you make space to hear those is really important. Um, when I think about racial trauma and racial stress, I was funny because I was, I trained at Children's Hospital. And so one of my rotations was around biofeedback. And I, you know, it's funny that we're talking about it here 20 something years later and yeah, and no, we have, we have, we wear these watches, right? So there are ways in which we get feedback about our experiences. But when I, when I was being trained, we had to put like these, these, um, things, what do you call them <laughs> on your bodies? I'm like, my the people ain't going to do, yeah, like my people aren't going to do that, right? So I, I'm sure it's advanced, you know, now. 
Not enough. Not, <laughs> not enough. enough. Okay. So great. Right. How does it even look right? How do we even start to think about a client? Again, thinking about people who've experienced either medical trauma themselves or a fam- I trust you, there's somebody in the family who's experienced medical trauma. So we're thinking about these, these practices. How's it going to look and feel for someone? Like, are you going to do something to my brain? Are you trying to change my body? Right. Those are things that play out and those are real. So if you're not naming those to the client in the session, you're going to lose them. Right. So really being able to understand what are, what are the experiences of people with the medical profession? What are the medical trauma stories that they've experienced in their family? So there may be part of your intake needs to assess what is the medical trauma that these people, that your, your clients are, have experienced. But we're talking about racial trauma. Um, I think you really hit it on the head, Duran. We talk about this is in our head, right? We've been told you're being too sensitive. Oh, that didn't happen. Are you sure that you heard this right? Are you sure that they meant that? Right? There are all these ways in which our experiences are negated. And then we start to internalize that. Like, oh, maybe we're being too sensitive. Why am I, why am I doing it? What's wrong with me? Right? So we start to internalize those messages as well. And so I think, again, there is more attention to even naming racial trauma now, naming racial stress. So there's definitely an increased awareness, but it definitely has an impact in our bodies um, in this moment, right? So people, we talk about microaggressions, right? So there is a body impact of experiencing a microaggression, but it doesn't just stay for that moment. I can tell you there are definitely experiences that I've had that I can recall, in my brain, but also in my body, how it felt. And then I'm, then I'm in going into an environment where I've had experienced my progression. Now I'm also on hyper alert about, is this going to happen again in this experience? Is this going to happen with this person again? Are the people around me who are supposed to be my coworkers, are they going to stand up or are they going to remain silent again? Right? So these are all the things that people are carrying with them in that experience of racial stress and racial trauma. So, you know, as Duran is talking about legacy burdens, you know, you're not just operating on the person who's in front of you, their trauma, right? Um, there's research that talks about trauma. Um, we can track trauma 14 generations, right? And so you're not just, again, so the point is you're not just thinking about the person who's in front of you and the trauma they've experienced. Now you have to think about the different generations that have come before them and how that past, that trauma has been passed through genetically. There are things that we do. The work of um, Resma Manikin talks a lot about that generational trauma. The things that we do, we show up in our bodies and on our minds and, and what we call culture sometimes is also trauma. Um, so those are experiences we have to, again, as clinicians, we have to be aware of and mindful of when we're working with someone, we're not just working with their trauma, we're working with generational trauma. We're working with collective trauma as well. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal, and our guides today to the healthy brain and happy body were Dr. Charmaine Jackman and Duran Young, both are licensed mental health providers developing ways to reverse racial inequities in mental health care in the U.S. Learn more about Dr. Jackman's work at www.innopsych.com and about Duran Young's work at blacktherapistsrock.com and at her presentation as part of this year's NRBS annual conference. 
Remember, you can join us virtually on October 21st and 22nd by registering with the code HAPPYLISTENER at nrbs.org for a 25% discount. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. We really do want to hear from you, so be part of this ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really helps podcasts like this one reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body. Happy Body.